all the places that are being bombed, destroyed, where people are being beheaded in Afghanistan and Iraq, I've been to, and I hitchhiked there. I, I walked the streets. I sat in mud houses with people and had tea. And so I'm glad I did it then, because you, can't, you certainly can't do it now. Welcome. I'm your host, Nicholas Strauss, and you're listening to The Participant Observer, a space where you become aware, a place where you are the Participant Observer. I am talking with the inimitable John Dodig, who recently retired from being the principal of one of the most well-respected high schools in our country, Staples High School. Mr. Dodig began his tenure at Staples in 2003, and he acted with resolve and passion to ensure Staples High School remained one of the most revered high schools for its teachers, advanced academics, multi-championship sports, and even the nationally renowned theater club, the Staples Players. In 2008, Connecticut Magazine named Staples High School the number one high school in the state, and Staples was also recognized as a National Blue Ribbon School by the U.S. Department of Education in 2013. However, John Dodig started his life in less than celebrated circumstances and wasn't necessarily sure he was cut out to be the leader that he is today. When I look back, I have to say that I was born with a resilient gene. So, you know, we we came from a poor family, fifth floor walk up, infested with roaches and mice. That's what I knew. By the time I was four, I mean, I met my father when I was three, so he came back from the war. Um, I realized that we had a dysfunctional family, and my role in the family was to tell jokes and sing songs and deflect what was going on. And then, I, I don't remember, five, six, seven, I realized a deep, dark secret, which was that I was gay. I didn't know what the word was, but I knew I was different. And because of my father and all of his friends, I knew that it was wrong and I had to hide it. And you knew at the age of five, Oh, I knew at the age of, absolutely. I was attracted to males rather than females. Right. But since I knew it was wrong, and because I, I guess I have an artistic gene, I've been in the theater my whole life, I was able to hide it. So I became this other person with the best looking girlfriends and, you know, and occasionally someone would figure it out and say something, but I became very glib and was able to deflect it. That lasted until I was probably 16, and then I, I couldn't deal with it anymore, and I thought about suicide. But at that point in my life, I, I was looking for something, and I was in church, and I believed that I would go to hell. Uh, I've dispelled that at right. this point. But, but that caused but me that, not to kill myself. So it's uh, you know a dogma which is uh, very destructive in many ways right. turned out to that save That one helped me, though. At that point. Right. And then, you know, moving forward, my parents were divorced by the time I was 16, but no one ever spoke to me about going to college. Do you want to go to college? What would you like to be? I was in private school, Catholic Notre Dame High School in West Haven, and no guidance counselor ever asked me what I'd like to do when I grow up. It was completely on my own. And I just decided that if I were going, if I was going to change my life and get out of what I knew up until 16 years old, 17 years old, that I had to go to college. 
And so I... Did you have friends who were going to college? And so you looked to yeah, them and Yeah, all of my you, friends were going to college. So you could see this was the way out. You could see they were making something yes, of themselves. This was the way out. But how do you do it? Because I had no money. So I uh, applied to one college. I applied to Fairfield University. And I think the tuition for a day student was $2,600, if I remember. So I had to work my tail off that summer to earn enough money to pay the first semester's tuition. And then I would drive down with my friend, Peter. We would get there for class. Then I'd come back. He would drop me off and I would work in a cafeteria at Quinnipiac College, which was in New Haven. And I'd mop the floors and clean the pots. I wouldn't get home until midnight. And then I'd do my homework. And then Peter would pick me up at seven in the morning. We'd drive to Fairfield. So after the first year, I said this, I can't do this anymore. So I transferred to Southern Connecticut and the tuition, I think, was $200 a semester or something. So again, I would get up in the morning. I would go to Barry Limited Shoe Store. I would polish all the shoes, sweep the floor. And then I became friendly with the boss, Barry Isaac, and he would give me his Thunderbird. And I would drive to Southern. I would take two classes. Then I would come back and I would sell shoes and then clean up the store and then go home and do my homework. Mr. Isaacs <clears throat> saw in you, obviously, Something he saw something special. in me. Yeah. I mean, first of all, to support you in spirit, to go to school and work and trust you in working in a store and doing all of these things that right. you did for him is one thing. But to give you his Thunderbird. He gave me his beautiful <laughs> car. I mean, I I just smile now that I think. But he just handed me the keys and, you know, go. And I think he just wanted to be a part of my success. Well, it sounds like you found um, maybe one father figure that was yes, a really, really good mentor or inspiration right. for you. Yeah. When I look back, the one man in my life who inspired me, although I didn't know that until an adult, was my fourth and fifth grade teacher, Mr. Wilner. And I mean, he was so good that we petitioned to get him to be our fifth grade teacher after the fourth grade. You know, I don't remember a thing he taught me, but I remember him. And he was just the right guy in my life at that point. You know, he'd bring his guitar in and he taught us how to play the tonette. But when he looked at me and said, Johnny, it was like my father saying that to me. So I remember him and I've written to him, you know, many times over the years. He, he's deceased. And, and funny, when I wrote my letter to all the parents at Staples saying that I was retiring, I think at the end I said something about Mr. Wilner. And I said one of my goals in life was to be the Mr. Wilner for somebody. And the next day, I got an email from a father whose son had graduated two years ago. And I became very friendly with August. And he said, August just heard about your retirement. He sent me an email and said, tell Mr. Doty that he's my Mr. Wilmer. That is uh, it's an incredibly beautiful story, Mr. So, Doty. I thank you so much for sharing that story with me because, <laughs> you know, it's funny before you said, I don't remember a thing Mr. Wilmer taught me, but actually you just described so many things, so to speak, that he taught you. It was all in relationship. Yeah, it was. And that's perhaps the most important. Oh, it powerful. stayed with me for all of these years. That's my role as a principal is to establish relationships with kids. There was a young man who just, just before I left, you know, every morning I stand in the main corridor. And you're you're well known for that. <laughs> Everybody in Westport knows right. Mr. Doty stands in the main corridor. And when you walk into the school, you will see him and get a friendly good morning. Uh, and I do it, well, I do it for me, and I do it 
because I'm the principal and I want the kids to know that they're the most important part of the school. But anyway, this one young man who's a sophomore, so now it's the end of his second year. We've been saying good morning to each other for two years. And he, the only time I ever spoke to him was I said, you know, you look sad to me. And he, he opened up a little bit. But today he passed me. We said good morning. He turned around and he came right back. And he said, I'm sorry to see you go. And I'm going to miss seeing you every morning. And then he gave me a hug. You know, and I can't help but say in another two years, how much more would he reveal to me because he trusts me and I'm an authority figure that he can trust. Mr. Dodig, that's, again, so powerful to provide safety and trust for, for these kids is such an incredible gift. And I don't think that they really do understand that that's in your heart and in your, the forefront of your mind when you're standing there. Right. No, they, well, they can't understand that. No. 14 and 15 and 16, but it's embedded in their hard drive and it'll come back when they're in their 20s and 30s or whatever, as it did for me. So anyway, I finished Southern Connecticut and then I had this desire to live on campus. And somehow, and I forget, I, I really don't know, I can't describe it, but I met the right person who introduced me to a Jesuit priest from Fairfield who liked me and said, how about if we offer you a resident assistance position? And so I, I took it. I got full room, board, tuition. I think I had to pay for my books. And I was in charge of the varsity basketball team <laughs> on the first floor of Canisius Hall and for bed check-in. Imagine that. <laughs> these six-foot-eight guys. These are very strange, <laughs> strange jobs that come your way. Yeah, that's right. So I, I went through one full year, but I, I fulfilled my dream, which is uh, meeting and having dinner with really interesting professors. I don't know if you know, I've ever heard of John McLaughlin. He yes. The McLaughlin group. Well, he was a Jesuit and he was on campus when I was there. And I remember he always had an entourage of young men who were just listening to every word of every pearl of wisdom that came out of him. He was the same bombastic person that he, that he is on TV but dressed as a priest. But we had dinner. We talked about literature and politics. And anyway, I finished Fairfield. And then I had this wanderlust and I wanted to do something big. So I, I went to a couple of meetings of the Peace Corps, but something about it I didn't like. And then I learned that the Jesuits have something called the Jesuit Foreign Missions. And they needed people to teach in three places. One was Nome, Alaska, and I hate the cold. The other was... <laughs> The island of Jamaica. And he says, sitting in Connecticut, <laughs> where we've had one of the worst winters <laughs> in history. Right, that is true. Uh, the island of Jamaica was another one. And I said, I can always go there for a week vacation. But the third one was Baghdad, Iraq. And this is where you receive a very different diagnosis. <laughs> this is, I, I must have been nuts to take this on. But I right. signed on for two years. At $20 a month, they paid for a ticket to get there. And in those days, there was something called an open-ended ticket on Pan Am. So as long as I kept going east, I could take an unlimited number of flights. So I flew to Milano, spent the summer in Europe, but then I flew to Istanbul and I flew to Tehran. And anyway, I landed in Baghdad. It was 124 degrees that day. Lived in a monastery with the, uh, a cloistered monastery with the Jesuits. And I, I, and I spent a year there teaching at Al Hikma University, which was an adjunct of Boston College. So all of the young people on that campus, when they graduated, could transfer to Boston College. And what was interesting was that 
although the Jewish population in Iraq was about half of 1%, on our campus, it was 15%. Wow. Because they were not allowed by law to receive education beyond high school in any of the government schools. So the University of Baghdad, for example, they couldn't attend. So then I, I traveled between the first and second year. We came back to start the second year, and the Ba'ath Party came into power. May I just pause yeah. for a moment? I mean, it's incredible. You're describing of an incredibly rich, dynamic world, which one at another time would want to explore endlessly. I mean, when you bring up the 15% population of Jews who weren't allowed to study by law past high school, as you right. say, you're now bringing to mind uh, people who may have had a similar plight as you, people who were disenfranchised in some way because of their... Because of who they are. Who they are. Oh, absolutely. And so you must have had the most amazing connections and development of your understanding of the universe in this small microcosm. Absolutely. It was not just the campus, but when I traveled to all of the small little towns in Iraq and in Iran, I realized, first of all, it was not healthy to be Jewish. And secondly, it was not healthy to be a woman. And having gone to Catholic school and seeing the nuns dressed in black with the wimple, I learned where that came from. And it came from that part of the world where women at that were really considered nothing more than chattel. Right. And they were required to cover themselves. So that the same, the same outfit that you see women being required to wear in Saudi Arabia, that's where the nuns uniform came from. Hmm. And what does this symbolize? Now, here I was 21 years old and assimilating all of this that, that I see. And I said, wow, the world is not a very fair place. When I would ask a man, how many children do you have? Oh, I have two, but I would see seven, but five were female and two were boys. This is astonishing. It really is. By the way, I'm assuming that at this time, you're not traveling city to city with military convoy. This is, no, no. This is a very different time. It was a different than, time. Than your students Absolutely. Of, of present day may really know about. All, all the places that are being bombed, destroyed, where people are being beheaded in Afghanistan and Iraq, I've been to, and I hitchhiked there. I, I walked the streets. I sat in mud houses with people and had tea. And so I'm glad I did it then, because you, can't, you certainly can't do it now. Uh, but we woke up one morning, and the military surrounded the university, and we were told not to go on the roof to hang our clothing as we normally did, uh, or we'd be shot. And the Jesuits were told, you have to make a decision to either expel the Jewish students or leave Iraq. And some of those Jesuits had been there for 30, 40 years. Some had been buried there. And they'd given their lives to educating the uh, young people of Iraq. And so it was no... You know, they, they took two days to make a decision, and they flew all of us to um, Beirut, Lebanon, which, by the way, then was like Paris. It was a magnificent place. And the three young men and, and I said, we signed on for two years. If you don't mind, instead of flying us home, give, give us the money that you would spend on a ticket, and we're going to hitchhike. <laughs> so... You, they, you were an entrepreneur. <laughs> I was an entrepreneur. They, they gave us the money. You, now, you've taken a, a, an incredibly dramatic political situation and you've turned it into an opportunity right. to explore a city that is uh, like Paris. I, I must have been 
either I, naive or stupid. Or a dreamer. A dreamer. I was a dreamer. Uh, yes. A dreamer. So we, we took a tiny little plane to a, a small village in Afghanistan. And then from that point, we hitchhiked east. And we would be picked up by tourists. We'd get on a, a local bus where all the luggage and people would be on the roof. And in the, in the bus would be chickens and goats. And, and we went to Tehran. We, and then we just kept going to, uh, through Pakistan. And then on a train, I'll never forget, we took a train across India, the whole country of India it took three days. I think we paid $5 or $6 and we slept in the equivalent of what now is a luggage rack on, on uh, the train to New York. And it was just crowded with people. And we went to uh, Calcutta. And that's when I realized the third thing. One, it was not healthy to be Jewish. Number two, it's not healthy to be a woman. And number three, why on earth would the church be opposed to birth control? when I saw literally thousands and thousands of young kids, one to 16, with their with a mother or a father, just when the sun went down, they just lay down on the ground, on the sidewalk or in the, in the gutter to sleep. And then they'd wake up in the morning and they would look for a discarded banana peel or an apple core. And they were always begging for money. And I kept giving rupees and rupees. And then I gave my coat and realized that I could give absolutely everything and there'd still be a million more people like that. Uh, so from India, we went to... How did your heart not break? Oh, it was... My heart would break every day. I just couldn't understand. I mean, I became... That's when I became more disfranchised with the church for its stance on birth control. I just couldn't understand... And women. I just couldn't understand how anyone with compassion could see this and not know that the best thing you could do is to say that all children are worthwhile, male and female. And since you're so poor, don't have 10 kids. So I had enough after two weeks. We went to um, Nepal, up to Kathmandu. We found a Sherpa who would take, there were five of us, and we marched up with sneakers up to <laughs> 11,000 feet. I lived uh, with a family and with their water buffalo, and I picked up a terrible case of fleas. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if by now you'd had anything else, no. Mal malaria? Oh, but I did. You did. In, in Iraq, I was at the place called the Shat al-Arab, which is where the Tigris and the Euphrates come together. And I said, how many times in my life am I going to be here? So I need to go in, dive into the water. And the, the teenage guide said, you probably shouldn't because you it's not healthy. But I did. And for years, I had this amoeba that I carried with me. It's gone now, but I found it, no, it had this it for is, many this years. This is the caveat for your present-day students, right? Uh, th these were your rebellious years. <laughs> Those were right? my rebellious Diving years. Diving into the waters. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so anyway, we spent time in, in uh, Nepal and then hitchhiked through the jungles of Malaysia to Singapore. And then from Singapore, in order to get to Japan, I had to take a boat. So we spent, I don't know, $50 or something to live in steerage. Then I wound up in Japan, in uh, Tokyo, visited Yokohama and a few other villages, and then we had to fly back home. So I, I sent home for some money, flew to Los Angeles. Uh, once in Los Angeles, there were two of us left, uh, Bernhard Darch, who was German, and I. And we looked in the newspaper and we found a company that manufactures vending trucks, and it needed to be delivered to Washington. So they paid us for seven days travel. We traveled across the country, drove this thing to Washington, delivered it. 
And then I said goodbye to Bernd. He flew back to Germany. And I hitchhiked from Washington, D.C. to New Haven, marched up to my mother's door, knocked on the door, and I said, hi, mom, I'm home. She welcomed me with open arms and for two weeks. <laughs> Son, you're, you're 22 years old. You need to get a job. Oh, boy. So, uh, <laughs> so that, that was reality at that right. point. Uh, so I marched into the uh, human resources director of New Haven Public Schools. I had a master's in administration and supervision. Right. And he said, oh, you're a real teacher. Because back then, because of the baby boom, there weren't enough people to teach, and anyone who could breathe on his own without an oxygen tank was being <laughs> hired. And I had these credentials. Good Lord. So they hired me, and they paid me on the second step. So I got $7,800 a year, and they took me to Troop Junior High School, showed me my room. I think it was 207, and I met my students the following week, and nobody ever stopped in to see me. No one, no one gave me professional development. Uh, these are the most impoverished kids in America, and I had to sink or swim. And fortunately, because I'm resilient, I swam. And not only did I survive, but I said to myself, if I remember the one statistics course that I took, that there's something called a bell-shaped curve on which you can plot IQ, and 3% on one end will be gifted, and 3% on the other end will be the opposite. So I said, 3% of these kids must be gifted, and I bet you I can teach them algebra. Everyone said no. The principal, the New Haven math coordinator said no, but I did it anyway. And I started a class. I just gave a test. I made up a test, and then I corrected it and redlined it, and I picked 25 kids, and I offered them to stay after school if they wanted to learn algebra. And I got a class of 25. We spent 45 minutes every day after school. They learned algebra which meant when they went to high school that they would start in a different science class because they had the math to back them up. The following year, I had one section during the day. The next year, I had two sections during the day. Um, I taught for the Dwight Neighborhood Corporation after school, taught another section, plus I sold shoes too until six o'clock. So my eight years in that environment was very productive. And ambitious. I look, yeah, it, when I look back now, yes, it was ambitious. But to me, it was just, here are the kids, here are the needs, this is what has to be done. And I did it. And I learned one fantastic lesson about kids, and I guess about human beings, because this was an inner city school, almost 100% African American. Everyone was on free and reduced lunch. Everyone was on welfare. And I remember a tall, handsome, ex-basketball playing New Haven young man who was hired as a math teacher. And we all said, oh, finally, here's an African-American walking into the school. The kids are going to love him. Within two or three weeks, he just disappeared, never came back. They hated him. Mm. And then another woman was, a woman was hired as a music teacher. And when I met her, she was about five, two, maybe. She had long blonde hair, way down to her back. She was the wife of a Yale minister. And I said, oh, my God, she'll never survive. <laughs> the kids loved her. And it had to do with what's in your heart. And I, I discovered, the lesson I learned was right. that kids can tell in an instant whether you're genuine or you're a phony. And it makes no difference the color of your skin, your religion, how tall you are, what you, whether you're an athlete or not. If you're a, a mensch, I guess is the word, if you're a real human being, 
who cares and loves people, then they accept you. So she thrived there. She was terrific. But anyway, I got married. <laughs> I got married to a woman. This, um, this is a part of the personal journey that this we... This is the personal journey, um, right. You did this for your parents or I did it because... To help I didn't want to be gay. You didn't I, want to be gay. I wanted to be like everybody else. So I went to a, a Yale. So is, is it fair to say that over the time that you had described to me so far, you were also dealing with a lot of internal pressure and conflict about oh, identity. You were constantly worried about that. I constantly had to remember which lie I said to which person, what pronoun I was going to use. And it's so tiring now that I... You must have I, had incredible anxiety and... Oh, it was awful. It, you know, then, then when I traveled to the Middle East, you certainly... I mean, you, you can't be Jewish, you can't be a female, but God forbid you're gay. So certainly I had no contact with anyone. I, you know, I was... Uh, lonely. Lonely. Uh, so I went to a mixer at Yale. My mother was a dining hall manager at one of the Yale schools. And I met this au pair girl, Colette, and it was gorgeous. She spoke very little English, and I had never studied French. We danced, and then we dated. And six months later, we moved in together. And then we got married both in America and in France, so that she could come back. And then we had a child. And, it, you know, we had a very nice time. We bought a house like everybody else. and But then we drifted apart. And it wasn't because, I mean, I don't think it was because I was gay. It wasn't like I was dating men on the side. But when I met her, she was 19 years old. And we just grew apart. And then I, you know, I pursued being a principal. After eight years... In New Haven, my wife then said to me, you know, you need to earn more money and why don't you look at being an administrator? And I had gotten my administrative credentials. And she found in the newspaper a little ad that said, we're looking for an assistant principal at Daniel Hand High School in Madison, Connecticut. So I went for an interview. I applied, went for an interview, and they were looking for someone who could revitalize the arts program. And that was my background, theater and music. So they liked me and I got hired. And so with the stroke of a pen, I went from an all black school to an all white school. Right. And it was culture shock. But they were looking for someone to, to help with the arts. And I remember walking into the chorus, period four. Ray DeLucia was the teacher. And there were three boys and the rest were girls. So I blocked out my schedule. So every period four, I could sing with the chorus. And six years later, it was 50-50. 50% boys, 50% girls. And then you I seem be- to have a track record for <laughs> for improving things, Mr. Dodig. Yeah. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fixer. You're a fixer. I'm a fixer-upper. That's what I've learned I like it. that I am. A mensch and a fixer-upper. Right. And, and then I didn't get chosen as the principal. My principal left. I didn't get chosen. Uh, was it? Uh, was that a great disappointment to you? It was a, a, very, a big disappointment at the time. Right. But in retrospect, it was the best thing because right. I would have followed in his footsteps and probably replicated what he had begun. So I looked for a principal position and get hired in Cheshire, Connecticut. And what they were looking for there is someone who could bring a school that was full of graffiti, kids were fighting, dances were out of control, and bring order out of chaos. So I took that job and I was there for eight years. And uh, the good news is that we built a real comfortable caring culture. There were no more fights. There was no more graffiti. There were no 
drunks and ambulances at dances anymore. But the bad news was there were fewer dances because kids didn't want to come if we were not going to let them bring in backpacks. I wonder if at times there's a conflict in between what you'd like to do from your heart and what the community or mm -hmm. higher-ups would like to see from either a you know political perspective or a, um, a municipal perspective mm -hmm. in terms of what they would like the community, town, city to... Well, I think that, that, yeah, you just described a conflict, that the way you get around it, the way I got around it, is right. I was not going to turn into a principal with a baseball bat running down the hall, berating everybody and intimidating people into behaving the way the town wanted them to behave. So I chose to go a different route, and that was to like them to death. So I stand in the hall. I would uh, greet them every morning. Wait a minute. The standing in the hall started I, a while ago? Oh, it started years ago. This is not a Staples thing? No. I won't tell anyone. No. It, All right. I brought that with me. Right. Uh, I remember talking to my head custodian, and I got him to make planters for outside of the main office, the front of the building, and we planted geraniums, potted geraniums. And a few times he would come in and say they were pulled out and they're destroyed. And my answer was just plant them again. And you are very smart because the environment really affects the way people feel about absolutely. themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. They, yes. You walk into the building, if it's neat and it's clean and there are flowers, you feel good. Any working environment. Right. I'm Nicholas Strauss, and I thank you for joining me for part one of this podcast with John Dodig. If you'd like to participate some more, please visit us on the web at www.theparticipantobserver.com where you'll find all things related to the Participant Observer. We'd love to hear from you because you are the Participant Observer.